welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael the Man behind the machine, and to my right is Sebastian the Bookkeeper. Theodore Cooper once again not joining us tonight, but he's a newly married man, so we forgive him entirely. Today's episode is a speed one, so I'm gonna pass it off to Sebastian real quick. But in short, we had a three-hour-ish, two-hour, no, two, two, two and a half, something like that episode prior, uh, about 50 episodes back on the Church of the East. If you missed it, go check it out because we're going to go way more in detail on that episode than we will here. But Sebastian has continued his studies, basically like a little seminary doctorate he's given himself by going through many, many books, real hardcover books, rare books he finds on Amazon and steals from some poor college freshman who needs it for his seminary class, um, all on the Eastern Church. And when we say Eastern, we don't want you to think Eastern Orthodoxy because that's not East enough. Sebastian's not that basic. He's going for the Big East. He's going for the Middle East and India and China and places you've never heard of. So um, without further ado, Sebastian is going to try his best to summarize Eastern Christianity, why it's important, and what happened in Eastern Christianity in 30 minutes or less. Sebastian? We'll see, if I, could, we'll see if I can do it in 30 minutes, but... Church of the East, you might imagine Eastern Orthodox, not the case. This is centered in Iraq, Persia, and China, even India. Now, why should we even study these people? Are they even real Christians? You're going to find out. And Christianity with the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles didn't just spread to the Roman Empire. It also spread to the Parthian Empire, which was back then, and then Persia, later on in India even. We're going to do a crash course on the history of the Church of the East and how did it spread? How did Christianity travel across the Silk Road and what impact did it have on the people there? And just to give some bite to the fact that this is cool knowledge and it takes work to get it, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has really hated the Church of the East for a while or thought it was not important. And because we get most of our Christian history um, from European sources, because we are Europeans, um, we hear basically nothing about the Church of the East because the Catholic Church considers them not under the Pope and therefore not real Christians since time of immemorial. So um, they never really got along with the Church of the East ever and have basically ignored them for years. So if you read regular Christian history, you don't get the Church of the East's, East's perspective ever because the Catholics don't know it, neither does the Eastern Orthodox. And so um, they they flow under the radar. And, and if you take church history classes, usually they'll just be like, oh yeah, those are heretics out there. Um, we refuted that in our bigger episode. I don't think we'll get super into it and why they're not mm -hmm. heretics here, but we say they aren't heretics and that the gospel promised to go to the ends of the earth and it did. It didn't fail to go to the ends of the earth until the year 1500. It actually did go to the ends of the earth without the white man needing to do it. Now, of course, <laughs> Europeans come to the picture again, um, but I'll let Sebastian show the full history. Yes, keep in mind as I go through this, in the Roman Catholic Church, the state bows to the church. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, in, the, in that world, the church bows to the state mostly. In this part of the world, the Middle East and beyond, in Arabia too, they are the minority. They're always, they're never really in power. So please keep that in mind. This gives a third perspective on how Christians interact with the world, with society, compared to what the other two churches, Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, have done, as we have seen clearly in church history. I start at the beginning. Christianity spreads from Jerusalem, and not only does it go westward, it goes eastward, mainly to the city of Edessa and Arbela. That's something that really surprised me as I was doing my research. Edessa and Arbela, they are in, Edessa is in southern Turkey and southeastern, and then Arbela is in what would be now Iraq, Iran. They were important kingdoms back in the day. They soon start having a large influx of Jewish people, they convert to Judaism and then subsequently to Christianity. 
supposedly, and this is supposedly, this is a really dubious part because it's so early on, the Apostle Thomas and Thaddeus travel to the Middle East and they start preaching to the Jewish people. The Babylon area, which was where the Jews were taken to back, if you know your Old Testament, many remained there. There was a large segment of the Jewish population still in Babylon, Ctesiphon, or the city would be called then. And that was fertile ground for the apostles or any disciple of Christ or future disciple to spread the faith in that area. And that's what Thomas and Thaddeus do. Eventually, the apostle Thomas ends up traveling to India, first to the city of Taxila. If you know your Greek history, that was a city that Alexander the Great conquered. King Gondofaris supposedly hears the apostle Thomas and summon his family convert. We'll go back to that part of Pakistan is where Taxila is. We'll go back to that later on. And also, the Apostle Thomas will then travel to southern India, modern-day Kerala, in the south tip of India, where he will meet his end. And there, he would establish a solid Christian community of native Indians and also migrants from the Middle East. Trade was um, always flowing between those two parts of the world. So there were already Jewish people in India and Sri Lanka by the time. So it wasn't... It wouldn't have been a shock for him to end up in India because the trade already existed. And I will leave that on India. Maybe I'll do an episode just on India in the future if there's interest. But I do want to say that they will thrive for the next 1,500 years, having their own community on their own. And when the Portuguese show up and they're like, oh, there's Christians here, they will clash with the, we'll call them historians, and we'll get to that later. Because the Christian Indians and historians there, they were extremely anti-images. And as you can later imagine, the Portuguese, they really liked their images. So yep. you can imagine the confrontation that happened because they were saying the Indians here, they are idolaters, same with the Buddhists. What keeps us apart from them is the fact that we have zero images in church. The Portuguese were saying, here, put these images in your church. Okay, That would be a story for another day. And just as a sub-point there, it shows you that it, truly these branches of Christianity were legitimate and uh, they lasted just as long as regular Christianity in the West that you think of. And then equally, they had like solid theology and that they wouldn't have imagery. So we think of the West being the best often, um, but in that case, I think we were wrong. And by we, I mean the Portuguese, which I don't uh, get behind the Portuguese and the Catholic Portuguese. But in any case, and what you should note there too is that we have a bunch of history from Paul because he wrote so much of the Bible, so much in the New Testament. Um, so we know of his travels and the Western European things that he did um, and, and Near East. And so I think that's also part of the reason that the Church of the East gets overlooked is because we don't have that like primer in the scriptures. Um, but notice that Thomas's journey here from Jerusalem all the way through the Middle East and into India was um, equal, if not greater, than the travels of Paul. So um, while Paul was handling one side of the spreading across the earth, Thomas and other apostles were handling the other side. And then others, uh, Christianity spread to Ethiopia and north. Um, so it did spread all four corners of the earth. And there were Jewish synagogues all over the world at the time because they had been spread out, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem. Fertile ground for, for missionary work. And we're going to go back then to Persia, Iraq, that area. We'll, I'll use the modern names too. We have already converts, a significant writer, which is called, his name is Afrahat. I do cite from him in the longer episodes, so if you are curious, you can refer to that. It's fascinating because he's a native Persian convert who becomes a church father, so to say, for the Eastern Church. And that would surprise me because 
the Persian Empire doubled down on their persecution more than the Roman Empire has been my observation because in the Roman Empire when they persecuted Christians they would either in some cases yes they executed them but in most cases persecution was you get fired from your job you cannot participate in this event you cannot go here you cannot go there you're ostracized from society in the Persian Empire Parthian and Persian later on Sassanid Zoroastrianism was the main religion being Persian being loyal to the Persian nation meant you had to be Zoroastrian converting from that was a death sentence so people were executed left and right when they converted to Christianity like straight up you would be executed and that really slowed down the spread of Christianity in the Persian Empire but still you had many converts in in that part one book I recommend Persian Book of Martyrs probably can't see it because of the light Persian Book of Martyrs very insightful very sad how the Christians suffered from the late 200s to the early 400s. There were several Persian nobles that converted, and areas like Afghanistan and Turkmenistan nowadays, eastern Iran, would be majority Christian. In my this is my take on it, they would be, have been majority Christian. That will come to play later too. Finally, 410, pretty much like the Council of Nicaea, just as Christianity is becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire in the West. It spread also in the East. So think of all the time it took for Christianity to become a, enough of a force in the West to become its official religion. It's been growing in the East as well. Exactly. So Nicaea was in 325, but this council at Seleucia, Ctesiphon, the capital of the Persians, the Persian emperor finally decides to make Christianity a tolerated religion, legalizes Christianity. It was mostly political. There's all this background with Nestorius being the patriarch in Constantinople. He's exiled. We'll not dive on that for this video. You can refer to the longer one for details on his theology and his background. Nonetheless, Christianity becomes legalized. They are able to finally start spreading and with ease, but still they are a minority. Several nobles from the Persian um, royal court, they convert to Christianity. The son of one of the kings of um, Khosrau converts. One of his wives was a Christian. So again, you, you think that all these people are just 100% Zoroastrian, but that's not the case. There were converts all over the place. In nobility, in the Book of Martyrs too, several dukes and generals convert to Christianity in the Persian Empire. Many people, unfortunately, we have lost their record in history. And we'll get also why there's so much little information. Yeah. In and I'll just point out that Catholics um, point to the East and say they're Nestorians because they don't believe in his theology or the theology they said he believed in, which maybe he didn't even believe in that. It's like a barely a difference. I would say it's not really a difference unless you define it in a really particular way. Um, but note that it's not like you knew the history about the East before Nestorius. So clearly this Nestorian label is just an excuse to not care about the Church of the East because they weren't under the Pope ever. And so there were real Christians before under equal persecution as the West um, and, and Nestorius being part of their... Um, recognition of being legit Christians in Persia is just a political move from the Persians um, so that it wouldn't be associated with Rome, who were their rivals, and they thought it was a Roman religion, so they didn't want Christians to like convert to Rome if Rome ever invaded, and so blah, blah, blah. Long story short, Catholics use this as an excuse to write off the Church of the East, but we should not. Exactly. Something fascinating, again, all of this fascinating, but something very interesting happens in 549 when the tribe, we'll call them the White Huns, and not by their actual name, they had come in from the Mongolia area and settled in what was modern-day Afghanistan. We'll say that just for simplicity. And just as the Roman Empire is exploding by the, by the regular Huns that we all know about in the West, these other Turkic people are settling in Afghanistan and harassing the Persian Empire. But one of their kings 
Rand, out of the blue, asks the patriarch in Tessiphon, the Nestorians, they also are developing, they are consolidating, they have their own bishops, they have their own local churches, their own monasteries, they have a patriarch. Just like how there's the Pope, the Patriarch of Rome, Patriarch of Constantinople, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, the White Huns approach the Patriarch in Tessiphon, or the Nestorians, and ask him to appoint a bishop for them. The king, uh, the kings are sh the king of Persia is shocked. So is the patriarch because these Mongols are just randomly showing up asking for a bishop. Apparently, a lot of like the bad guys. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But remember how I said that Afghanistan and Iran, Eastern Iran, had been also had a significant number of Christians there, uh, and also from my take, whatever mission Thomas had left in the Pakistan area, which is some an area that the Huns also conquered would have influenced the, they were mostly wealthy, the Christians were mostly part of the upper middle class traders, the elite of society too, well-read, well-spoken. They would have influenced the court of the Huns mm -hmm. and eventually someone reached the king and the guy converts and asks, we need a bishop. Well, great, the Huns now are one of their kings at least, there was a confederacy, became Christian. And just a short note of that, that means I think that's a sign of healthy Christian religion over there in the East after 500 years because they're still evangelizing. You know, it wasn't just Thomas that converted this group. They were converted by clearly disciples who had learned from Thomas at some point. So after 500 years, it's still healthy evangelistic Christianity. And that's more than you can say in some parts of the West who at this point like hadn't even preached to the Germans yet and hadn't gone to the Norse or uh, the Britons yet. So um, it is healthy, real Christianity that's growing in the East just as a point. And on that... Please note that in the Western empires, Roman, Eastern Roman, and Western Roman, eventually they will have complete support of the state. Mm -hmm. These people, they rarely had funding from the Persian court, only if the king was in a good mood. Sometimes they would actually clamp down and close down churches from the, the Persian kings would close down churches. So keep in mind that they're always the minority. They're never part of the ruling court. They're, they're here and there every once in a while, but they're never the official religion of the country. But they are still evangelizing. That will come to play also. In the same time frame, in the city of Gundeshapur, which you don't even need to say that, but it's in southern Iran, one of the first ever formal written about schools of medicine with a hospital mixed together in which there's life training for students is funded there. By the Nestorians and for the next uh, 1,000 years until Saddam Hussein kills them all um, the Christians in Iraq and Persia were always known for being amongst the elite of society they would have been doctors they would have been um, scribes or um, traders and pretty much the elite of society they're and like the Jews of the Middle East huh? exactly this same also why some of the Indian kings, they really favor the Christians there in India because they all were skilled artisans, scholarly doctors. Doctors back in the day were ex extremely rare commodities, so they were the Nestorians were highly desired by pagan societies and also by other Christians because we all need a doctor. And with that, slowly but surely, they will become very influential in the court of the of the Persian of the Persian kingdom and also of the Arabic Muslim states that will come in a bit there was always this competition between two kinds of monasteries which I find fascinating in the, within historians I'll call them historians for the for simplicity there's the 
my opinion, the strange ones that want to live in a cell covered in dirt and you just sit there and meditate. And then there's the other type of monasteries, more like what we see in Western in Western Europe. They learn how to write, they learn how to study, they debate theology, they copy manuscripts, they study medicine. So you have these two kinds of monasteries. Some even allow the monks to marry. That would also be fascinating. Refer to the longer video for monks being allowed to marry, which is a biblical command that priests yeah. and monks should marry. And they would start spreading and competing to see who would get these two types of monasteries who compete with one another in Persia and Arabia now too. One of the most famous historians from the time period, Isaac is Isaac of Nineveh. He is born in Qatar. Qatar, what the heck? How is that even a Christian nation? The majority of the population in the cities would have been Christian. The countryside was mostly pagan or Zoroastrian and eventually Muslim. But the majority in the cities was Christian. They were very wealthy, the monasteries in the Emirates, in Qatar and Bahrain, because of the pearl trade that the monasteries were dedicated to and also the wine trade. They, they had so much money, they could fund good schools for the monks to learn, such as Isaac. And then he would eventually be recognized for his skill, go back to Persia and become Bishop of Nineveh, hence his name. What I really like about him, he wrote a treatise on justification. Part of the book is in English, which I was able to get my hands on, but then the rest is in Arabic. Not very useful, unfortunately. I don't read Arabic yet. But he, the aspect that he writes on justification really touched me because he is pretty much saying what Luther would say, what any church father would have said, even John Chrysostom and Eastern Orthodox would say, Augustine would say, you are justified. Again, you're not mixed salvation like what modern Eastern Orthodox or Catholics do, but he distinguished between justification and living a holy life. He really emphasizes that in his book. And I was surprised that someone writing in Arabic from the 650s was able to clearly state that you are not justified by obedience of the law in any way, shape, or form. You are justified by faith alone. I can even, I'd be more than happy to read that on its own, on a single episode just to read his quotes. But I, I was very touched that right. someone like myself and someone so removed in time would express salvation in the same way. And if you know your timelines, you'd know that uh, 650, and Isaac and is there, is also about the time of the rise of Islam, which is, of course, very influential in the Middle East. Yes. Islam will take over the Persian Empire. Excellent transition. Thank you, Michael. And kill all the Zoroastrians, convert or die. That was the reality, unfortunately. Christians, though, they received a little bit of leniency because they were so skilled. They would be so foolish to just cut off your main source of income. And several translators, doctors, philosophers were hired from the academy in Gundeshapur, from the school there, to work for the court in for the, now the new Muslim caliphate. For our theology and Islam, you can refer to the longer video. We'll just stick with the history of the historians. And when the House of Wisdom is funded in Baghdad, everyone nowadays talks about uh, how the Muslims preserved wisdom from the Greeks, philosophers, and also medicine, dis medical discoveries, astronomy, and all of that. And by but, everyone, like even my high school textbook, you know, wants to give something to the Muslims and not to the Europeans. So they say uh -huh. that. They say the Muslims were the ones that kept mathematics going. You probably hear that a lot too. But if you read carefully, if you read the names of the people that are translating from Greek to Arabic and then from Arabic eventually to Latin, are they Muslim? They're not. 
they are these Nestorians. The, translate, the translating faculty in the House of Wisdom was almost entirely led by Christians. Same also with medicine. Yes, there were eventually more Muslims, but time progresses. But first, when it's opened, the majority of the doctors there, they're Nestorians. The Muslims had a majority in mathematics and astronomy and other sciences, but the Christians had a monopoly on medicine and translation. So next time you ever hear about the, the Arabs, the golden age of translation, you can remember it was the Nestorians that were leading the charge there. Now, I mentioned the Arabs took over the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. Did they all die? The king tries to escape. The King Yazdegerd, the last Persian emperor, tries to escape. As he is running for his life in Central Asia, what would be now Turkmenistan, near the city of Merv, which was also a very important Christian city. Again, places you never heard of, but they are important metropolitan cities. He is killed by an angry farmer and his children do escape to China, but the king gets a Christian burial in the city of Merv by the bishop of the city. Again, it shows how relevant Christians were in Central Asia in the Middle East at the time. Going to China though, you hear, you see someone arrive out of the blue. His name was Aluopen, possibly Abraham in what would have been Syriac, his language, but my take is he arrives also with the Persian delegation begging the Chinese court for assistance to take back the Persian Empire from the Arabs. But we'll focus on Alopen. When he arrives to the capital city of Tang, the Tang Dynasty in, in China in 635, he presents Christianity, because he's a monk, to the emperor of China. He personally receives the monk and takes on and reads the text that Alopen has written for him from translating from Syriac to Chinese. It's very awkward. The texts are difficult to read because it's the first time anyone is translating from Syriac to Chinese, from Aramaic to Chinese. There's a great book I've read by a strange fellow. This is the Jesus Sutras by Martin Palmer, Anglican, I'm pretty sure. Odd guy, but nonetheless, an excellent source for an actual translation into English from these sutras. And really good to notice that God allows Islam. It hurts Christians, Jews, you know, the whole region, basically sends the whole richest region in the world into chaos and makes it not rich. Um, but he uses it as a diaspora of Christians to China in this case and to other places. So even the good or even the bad is being used for good here and that China is now hearing the gospel when otherwise they wouldn't have because it was a big culture, language, and physical geographic barrier to get to China. Exactly. It's very dangerous to travel. Even with modern day, by car, thankfully, we're able to cross through the desert, but back then it was extremely dangerous. So that's a very good point. When Alua Pen gives the sutras, and you might be saying, what the heck is a sutra? Sutra is normally associated with Hinduism, Buddhism. Also from only think of the Kama Sutra, which is definitely not Christian. Yes, that is not Christian. There's the Jesus Sutras and there's the Kama Sutra, very different. The Jesus Sutras are summaries of Christian teaching. Some, what I found fascinating, they use Buddhist and Confucian, Chinese theology words to describe Christian salvation. Like the use of karma, you have only this life to get rid of your karma. And the only person who can take care of that for you is Jesus Christ, which is great. Communicating in a way that would make sense to the people in China. Because if you talk about um, the Old Testament, that might not make much sense. They're like, what is a Jew? They, they might ask you, you know, what's, they're like, who is Abraham? Right. But nonetheless, what I also found extremely, 
extremely encouraging was in one of the sutras of hearing the Messiah. He talks about, it's a summary of Isaiah 53, saying how we were all fallen under Adam, original sin. Fascinating because the Eastern Orthodox, they do not like the idea of original sin, but the Catholics do, and also Protestants, of course. But this Nestorian is presenting the fall, original sin, and atonement only by the blood of Christ, that he died on our behalf for atoning for the sins that we could not pay on us. That was extremely touching to see that someone so long ago was able to present the gospel to the emperor of China. And he said, it's like, wow, this is very fascinating. This is interesting. And he actually, he, the emperor decreed that Christianity should be funded by the state and that a monastery, a church should be built in every single province of China. So they do. Something that you will probably not be able to find, but I was able to find it with recent research, was that Christianity was originally called in China by other decrees, by translated from directly from Chinese from the Tang history books, the Persian religion. So Rastrianism was not called the Persian religion, it was called the fiery, because they worship fire, fiery religion. But Chinese records, whenever they refer to Christianity, they call it the Bosu, the Persian, Persian religion in Mandarin, which is like, wow, clearly they're, they're so influential. They're actively coming from Persia mm -hmm. and they're leaving a positive impact on the Chinese court. So again, just encouraging. And 150 years later, a fellow by the name of Jing Jing, which is Adam in Chinese, I don't know how or why, but he builds the Xi'an steel. Xi'an is the city in sitting China, still present to this day, celebrating the arrival of Christianity 150 years ago. And it's a good read. There's good translations of it, so I would recommend referring to that in your own time. It shows how the impact that Christianity had, the monasteries that were built, the dukes and nobles that converted, um, eunuchs, trying to crush down Christianity because they're jealous of how much treatment, um, good treatment they're getting from the Chinese government. The Christian monks are able to win debates against the uh, Chinese eunuchs. And they're always, always, always represents each su successive emperor funds the monasteries, making sure they're kept up in good shape and that they're able to evangelize and do translations. Which is pretty incredible because we think of China today, you think of super communist and super not Christian. You kind of think of it like the Middle East and India where like, where are the Christians? These are non-Christian nations. But the fact is Christians have been in both, even sometimes maybe a majority of the population have been Christian in these places at some sometimes in history. So again, the gospel really has gone out to all the corners of the earth. Now it ebbs and flows as far as Christianity being popular and populous. Um, so of course today, Christianity is on the rise again in China and India and the Middle East, but right now the majority is not those. Um, but just interesting to think how it, how it arrived way, way, way before the modern day. Mm -hmm, exactly. They also were critical in helping the Tang Dynasty, according to their own records, to quell a civil war, the Anlushan Civil War. One of the main generals, Guo Ziji, uh, was a Chinese general, accompanied by a man named Yi Zi whose background was Persian Christian, they, he, he left such a good impression on the Chinese that the court kept funding even more Christian and giving more gifts and praising Christianity, the, the Chinese court, that is. And they also, because the Uyghurs, 
they're still to, to this day in Xinjiang in Western China. They were, they were either Christian or Manichaean, depending on the region that, they're, that you're traveling through. The Christian in, in China, like you said, were able to intervene and negotiate peace with the Uyghurs on behalf of the Chinese. So that was definitely, they, paid a, they played a significant role there. And we're cruising through by the year 800. This is their golden age of the Church of the East, Patriarch Timothy I. He is the most influential and powerful patriarch in the entire history of the church, I would say. And he consolidates power on the patriarchy. You might be saying that's bad, that's weird, possibly. I think he was, overall my take is he, he did mostly good things. And from the records that we have, he's able to assign metropolitans to, which are, it's the rank above that of a bishop, if you know your church hierarchy. He sets up metropolitans in Samarkand, Kashgar, even Tibet. Normally, to, for, to assign a metropolitan, you need, I would say, at least 100,000, 200,000 people in a region for it to be worth. That is my, this is my, my humble interpretation of the text, which means that there would have been around 200,000 Christians in Tibet, which we normally don't associate with Christianity. Mm -hmm. I could even do a another separate video on the influence that Christianity left on Buddhism, Taoism, and how many of the rituals that they do today are in fact based on influence from Christianity. But that will be a story for another day. Nonetheless, the Turks in this time of Timothy, they convert to Christianity. And it is possibly that these people are Mongols, but regardless, Christianity is spreading now most more into Central Asia which was limited back during the Muslim expansion because they were telling people to convert to Islam. And Timothy, if you are interested in Islam or any Muslim Christian apologetics, he is someone that you must read. I have read part of his letters in detail. He sounds like John Calvin traveled back in time and wrote a few things in Arabic, but he has such an interesting discussion with the Caliph, a debate with the Caliph of Islam, Al-Mahdi, in the city of Baghdad. And if you are into Muslim apologetics, Christian Muslim apologetics, and you haven't read Timothy, I encourage you to do so. It is available online. One of the best reads you'll have because not only is he debating and you will see that Muslims haven't changed pretty much at all their arguments for why Islam is true and, Islam and Christianity is false, but also he sounds like John Calvin. I will leave it at that. I couldn't even um, cite from him on another episode. And sadly, once the Tang Dynasty starts to fall apart in the late 400s, Christianity starts to disappear. And the emperor bans monasteries, Buddhists and Christian alike, and tells everyone that you have to become lay people. You may be asking, why is Christianity starting to collapse? Well, because as the Tang Dynasty, which controlled parts of Central Asia, so China control countries that are nowadays Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. They were trying to help the Persians regain back their empire. That would be a story for another day too. But once they are cut off from Central Asia, Persian language, Persian culture, Persian diplomacy is no longer relevant because they physically cannot travel to the Middle East or to Europe or access those markets. So China is starting to become more isolated. Therefore, the emperors, they don't see any practical need to start funding Christianity because the connection is lost. 
and also there's competing factions between the Confucians, the Buddhists, obviously the Christians are in the way, let's get rid of them. And because Christianity was so closely connected with the Tang Dynasty, once the dynasty collapses and there's civil war in China, all the other Chinese dynasty, future Chinese dynasties, they want to get rid of Christianity because it was so tied to a dynasty they just overthrew. So sure. it makes sense to get rid of them. Which so is, they finally experienced persecution because China had been riding pretty smooth since it came in. Yes. Yeah. And a good point to notice, because Christianity was so closely associated with the state, once the funding was cut, similarly to what happened to the Byzantines and the Eastern Orthodox, they suffered greatly because they had relied so much on funding from the state. A lesson for all of us to keep in mind. Yes. But Christianity does survive in Central Asia at this time. And in the book I have, From the Oxus to the Chinese Shore, Studies on East Syria Christianity in China and Central Asia. Oh, you can actually read this. Wow. Because of the right background. Um, I was able to find writings from a monastery in Xinjiang, Turpan. And... Hundreds, there's been hundreds of manuscripts found in that library. This is after the Tang Dynasty collapses and Christianity, Christians are kicked out from China. But in this monastery, Christianity survives in the Tarim and Central Asia. And what I was able to find in here in some translations into English from Sogdian, Uyghur, and Syriac, and Persian too. I was able to find prayers, hymnals, the Nicene Creed, and quotes from the Bible. The point is, you can see that all these languages, all these different ethnicities are interacting with just within the same monastery. And there's this fluidity in language usage, translation too, with the Nestorians, showing how effective missionaries there were because clearly they're adept in many languages. And to say that Christianity was not diverse, that's just a silly thing to say. Right, or that it's the white man's religion or whatever else. Like, it clearly is being championed and carried truly by other places. They're not even just like keepers of the flame. They are producing their own theology, mm -hmm. and it's good theology, and, and converting nations and things that, uh, that we struggle to do today. Exactly. And we can tell that they survived because you see um, several graves all throughout Central Asia with Christian symbols, crosses, inscriptions on the gravestones in Kyrgyzstan of all places in Suyab, near the modern-day capital Bishkek, by the year 1000, there's a comeback. I skip all that time because Christianity really suffers for that time, for the time period after it collapses in China due to Muslim persecution. And But by the mid-1000s, three Mongol tribes convert, Kerate, Ongud, and Naiman. I go into de more detail about specifics on their conversion in the longer video. We can see that many of their nobles start taking Christian names. And this would have been a natural conversion because Mongolia was starting to become an attractive market by this time. And main, most of the traders in Central Asia were Christians coming from Persia. They were starting to travel in that direction. And it only made sense that these westward Mongols would convert first. So they get also their own their own bishop. And was it in the same book that I sh showed, the 
Chinese um, scholars are able to were able to identify different tombs, all through hundreds of tombs, all throughout northern China for Mongolian nobles, dukes, generals, all kinds of ranks that were Christians that had Christian crosses in their tombs. So already there was a an influence of Christianity in the area that we call Mongolia today. By the 1200s, we all know him. Genghis Khan conquers all of Asia, pretty much half of Europe, all the Middle East, and kills anyone, anything that moves in his path, except for Christians. You may be asking, why would he spare the Christians? Well, as, I, as you just heard from a lot of the tombs and sources that we have from on remains that we have from Mongolia, a lot of people in higher positions in the Mongolian court were Christians. Several um, kings of the Mongols, of Mongol tribes, were Christian. Some of the wives of the heirs of Genghis Khan were Christian. The mom of Genghis Khan was a Christian. I almost forgot about that. So, I mean, how committed these people were, we'll leave it to the Lord. But nonetheless, clearly, they have some an impact on, on the Mongols. And as the Mongols are coming in to take over the Middle East, Baghdad, the most wonderful and popular city in the world, something you probably wouldn't imagine today, mm -hmm. but back then it was the one, a jewel of the world. Um, Hulegu, the grandson of Genghis Khan, comes in, absolutely kills all the people except for the Christians in Baghdad. Why? His wife, who was an historian, kindly asked him, please do not kill the patriarch nor the Christians. So he did not. So he killed everyone else, probably two million people and just kill them all and as the mongolians settle in in iraq and persia this is a part of history that modern persian people and iraqis they really don't like to talk about because their culture was annihilated by some foreigners so this is why you have less sources from the time but several of the mongol kings that are ruling now iran iraq the ilkhanate they have christian um, symbols not only on, on them or their court, but also in their coins. One coin I was able to find, it reads in Arabic, Bismil Ab Wal Ibn Warrohiel Kudus, Ilahiel Wahid, which means in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. That's very Christian. You know yes. And in Arabic, not so, and not Muslim, and it's in Arabic. So clearly it shows that there was a high uh, level of commitment to Christianity amongst maybe not necessarily the king, but for sure the higher ups in the Mongol court. So much so that in the same time period, a man by the name Raban Barsauma, born in what is Beijing nowadays, travels from Beijing, seeking to go to Jerusalem with his best friend, Mark. They end up- Raban Barsauma and Mark, okay. An excellent duo, yes. yes. <laughs> he is eventually recognized for his skill as a monk and and also being educated, same with his friend. Um, he is hired by the Mongols to go on their behalf to seek an alliance by Kublai Khan to seek an alliance with the kings of Europe. Like a like, reverse Marco Polo. Literally a reverse Marco Polo. There's a good book I have on that, so I will, I will include it in the sources below. And he makes so many friends along the way, good impressions. He meets the Mongol king in Baghdad in Tabriz, same Iran area. And he's like, oh, your friend would be a great patriarch for the historians. And then the historians are like, yes, 
there's this Mongolian man, possibly, he's possibly Ungud Mongolian, Mark, and they elect him as the patriarch of the Church of the East. Gosh, they're that desperate. They pick some random Chinese traveler. They're like, the Mongols are, I mean, they can, you, they, uh, they're like, they're Asians. This guy's Asian. We're Syriac people. I mean, put two and two together. They're like, well, I don't care about the race thing. It's just like he's a random traveler. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. He was a monk. He was a monk. So you would assume he would know how to read and write and think on his own. And and in Raman Barsalma, he is chosen to continue on his journey, not to Jerusalem, but rather go to Constantinople, go to meet the Pope. He meets two popes. Go to Naples. He goes to France, England. He gets shown. He gets treated like nobility in all the cities that he travels. A very fascinating life he must have had. And unfortunately for him, he doesn't secure any crusades because the Mongols were asking the Christians, the other Christians, let's all unite to finally crush the Egyptian kingdom. It never happened. Muslims, yeah. Muslims, uh huh. And only the King of England showed some interest in that. But unfortunately, he had some. Yeah. political turmoil back in England so he had to go back and I mean, I mean I guess he had I guess while the mission wasn't successful in the slightest he must have had the time of his life meeting all these famous people <laughs> yeah. all the kings and popes and whatnot so and this would be one of the highlights that the Church of the East in probably would say in their own history that they that they enjoyed but unfortunately such a all these gifts and prestige that they got from the Mongols, because many of the Mongols were Christian, and also, of course, Buddhists and pagans as well. That would be their downfall. Once the Mongols, Mongols leave and the money stops flowing, you tend to get spoiled by all the money and by the safety that you have now, because you've never had safety before, now you finally have it. The Mongols are more than willing to protect the Christian churches from any angry mob of Muslims from coming in and looting the place. However, well, speaking of angry mobs of Muslims, a, a man by the name of Tamerlane, who will rise up in the late in the early excuse me 1400s, he comes from he is Uzbek from Uzbekistan. He unites all the nomadic tribes there, and like the Mongols, he sweeps in, takes over all the successor states after the Mongols have collapsed. All the other Muslim states, and he kills absolutely anything and everything that he sees on his path. More, the Mongols spared people; they were very nice people. The Mongols, in comparison, Tamerlane, he will not even force convert anyone. He'll straight up kill any non-Sunni Muslim. He also killed Shias as well, and that was the death blow to Christianity, unfortunately, in the Middle East. All these famous cities that um, harbored missionaries and shipped them off to Central Asia to evangelize people like Murph, Samarkand, Kashgar, and um, Herat in Afghanistan and other Central Asian countries, completely destroyed. Only Muslims are left. All the Christians are dead in Persia as well. And that was the killing blow to the Church of the East, completely cut off from China. And in China, once the Mongols are finally expelled from China, the Ming Dynasty comes up. Uh, originally very expansionist, but eventually very isolationist. They kick out any and all foreign influence or religion, anything that had to do with the Mongols, get it out of here. Any non-Chinese religion, get it out of here. All the Christians are exiled. Possibly a lot of monasteries are destroyed in this time period. So we have a very limited information in this time, unfortunately. Now, if you're anything like me, 
and this is when Sebastian has been studying this for like years plus now. Uh, I thought, well, how real are these Christians if God allows them to be like pretty much exterminated? Um, what you might notice is twofold. One, this is about the time that Europeans are starting to colonize and explore. And so in God's timing, Christianity would only be absent from these places for a very short period of time because even though uh, internally they had been eliminated, externally here they come again, right, from the Europeans. So it's not like uh, there were going to be non-Christians for long in these places. But two, Sebastian made this point, and it was pretty poignant to me, was that these Christians, if you've been following along, have been blessing their nations ridiculously for the past thousands of years. Um, they've been blessing them with monasteries and wisdom and good conduct and being good, good citizens, and they were building the wealth of Persia, of Iraq, of China, of these Middle Eastern areas. I mean, Bucktooth nowhere these days, these, these countries like Uzbekistan and things that, you know, they're not the richest nations in the world, if you can imagine. Um, they used to be very rich, actually, like as rich as... Um, I'm not going to make comparisons because it's not going to be right, but like any other European country, like rich, rich for their time um, because of the Christians that were there. Now, those nations continued to be evil and they weren't actually Christian. Like Sebastian is saying, even during the Mongols time, um, maybe with the Mongols being the one exception, but um, often there were non-Christian lords ruling these people, whether they were Muslim or they were Zoroastrian or whatever else, uh, Buddhist in China. So the ruling authorities were benefiting from the Christians, blessing their nation, but they still weren't submitting to Jesus. They weren't submitting to God. And therefore, it could be that this destruction by Tamerlane and the expulsion of the Christians from China and this persecution that succeeds is actually God's way of removing his light from these nations to give them ultimate judgment. Because as we all know in history, um, while they might have been rich in the Middle Ages, those countries are now completely desolate and get absolutely invaded by Christians or people that benefit from the Christian worldview um, easily because God snuffs out their light and lets all the nations that still have his light um, keep advancing and growing and growing in technology and power and population um, such that Russia is able to like destroy all the Central Asians who have become nothing by the time Tamerlane is done destroying them. And then equally, the, the Western powers are able to invade Hindu India and the Middle East is able to be conquered by Europe because they had been advancing and the Middle East did not. And same with China. So all this shows that God, I, and I think I agree with Sebastian, God judged these nations because of their rebellion against him, not because of the faithlessness of the Christians in them. So his removal of his Christians there, via violent means, um, was a way of judging these nations so that they would quickly come under his knee once again because the Lord is uh, conquering these nations today. And it's not just through force, um, like the humiliation of China or the invasions of Europeans, but now that Europeans are gone, Christianity is there and alive once again, spreading throughout China and through Central Asia and East Asia and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. As Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And these, I would say these people were. Clearly, they are working honestly. If they were not, they probably would have been booted out of the city and they're like never associated with any Christian, but rather they're welcomed. They're treated with respect. Even after this edict of banning Christianity is passed, there was a remark of some um, Chinese record saying that in the city of Sichuan, there's still one Christian monk left up in the mountain living all sad in a hut because, you know, no monastery anymore. Yeah. And he said, yeah, he's still around. He's a pretty good guy. And yeah, he's a very good optometrist. Yeah. So, I mean, he clearly, clearly they left some impression on, on, the, on the people, even as random as a opto poor optometrist abandoned by, abandoned by, by society. But 
it is a judgment on the on the nations not so much on the people there because even though this you might be saying isn't it horrible that they were exterminated it is absolutely the tamerlane will be judged for the evil that he had done not only for to christians but also to all the tengrists zoroastrians and shia muslims that he exterminated for his own like the king of assyria thinking he was the ruler of earth but for the christians that died while they may have suffered for a bit they enjoy to be with the lord so it's a win-win situation they got to share the good news with all these kinds of people and if the lord calls them to even if it's a an, an unpleasant death you will be with the lord for eternity if you trust in jesus christ alone to wrap up and I'm impressed I was doing it. I did it this so quickly. Despite you have the 30 50% more episodes than we're planning, by the way, because we're hoping this is 30 minutes. But I was like, there's no way this is going to be 30 yeah. minutes. I did my best. I did my best. By 1550, the Patriarchate, the Nestorians in Baghdad, whatever's left, Tamerlane comes in and also exterminates a lot of the native Assyrians, the Aramaic population in northern Iraq, and settles them with Kurdish people. So if you see a lot of Kurds in North Iraq, oh, that's because of Tamerlane. He like for took them from Iran and just threw them into... If you kill Christians, you can take their land. So they came in and killed the Aramaic Assyrian speakers there. Whatever was left of the Nestorian church, by 1550, they have a split. They're like, we are probably going to disappear, which I don't think that they would have, but to each throne. And one side decides to join with the Catholic church. Ooh. Wrong choice. <laughs> As you can imagine, this is the time of the Protestant Reformation. So the Catholics are on fire with the Counter-Reformation, seeking to spread Catholicism far and wide into Africa, into Brazil, the New World, Asia as well. There will be, there will be Catholics translating the Bible eventually, again into Chinese, Matteo Ricci, later on serving as bishop in China. Story for another day. Half of these historians here, they want to join the Catholic Church. They do. The patriarchate becomes eventually an inherited position, which is not a good sign when the bishop, when the pastor in your church passes down through the family, that is not a good sign. You should get out of that church. Likewise, from here, as you can see, they're making questionable decisions like joining with the Catholics or staying historian. I, oddly enough, they flip at one point. So uh, I forget it, the Shimun line and then the Aliyah line. I'm pretty sure the Shimun starts in historian. Eliyah becomes Catholic, but and then they switch 100 years later. And then the Eliyah becomes historian, and then the Shimon becomes Catholic. It could be, could be the other way around. Sorry about that. Do any Eliyah followers nowadays? <laughs> Regardless, they have a sad and tragic end by the 1500s. But either, they will either join the now, the evangelizing Presbyterians and Anglicans that will be showing up. Same in India. I will... If there's enough interest, I will do an episode just on India because they have a fascinating history with their interaction later with the Catholics and then eventually when the Anglicans and the Danish showed up to the Lutherans, the Danish show up and start translating the Bible into their local languages. That will be a story for another day. For that, in only 48 minutes because the introduction doesn't count i was able to <laughs> summarize the whole history of the eastern church which is a feat on its own something that probably is not never been done before you may be asking michael as you're sitting here listening to me ramble were these people really christian i would say so 
we should just as much as we give grace when we read church history mm-hmm. as Protestants, Michael and I were both Baptist, Reformed too. You have to give grace to the people that lived before us that didn't have the phones that we have, the access to uh, technology, of course, or resources, books, whatnot, what have you. And that lived in a very limited environment. So whatever theology they had, they were limited to their time period, of course. But just as we extend grace to the Catholic Church before the Reformation, there were many brothers and sisters in Christ that lived in it. The Catholic Church was good up to a certain point. And same with the Eastern Orthodox Church. Likewise, I would say that we'll be seeing many people that identified with the Nestorian Church in God's kingdom, ultimately. Whether some weirdos and patriarchs that bribed their way in, assassinated people, absolutely like in the papacy, like in the patriarchate in Constantinople, where they're great people that didn't kill anybody. It's a low, pretty low bar there, but <laughs> like Timothy or other, like Abba or Hananishu or other patriarchs. Absolutely. So you'll, it was a mix. It's a mixed bag, just as much as the uh, Catholic and Orthodox Church had its own moments of glory and moments of embarrassment. Likewise, the historians had their, their both their moments. Mm-hmm. Amen. And, and again, it's really Sebastian's passion project, so I'm only like semi-passionate. But the thing that I get out of it is that, um, yes, I believe they're real Christians, which is just contrary to what Catholics and Orthodox would say. Um, but also that, that, again, the gospel really did go out to all the corners of the earth and that Christianity is not the white man's religion. It is kind of weird to think. Like, it is an odd worldview to say that Europe was the only bastion of Christianity until like the year 1800, essentially, when, when the colonization was in full swing and they started converting Africa and other places like that. So it is heartening to see that God's word did go out and it didn't, it wasn't just Europe that, that forced everybody to become Christian. It was actually God's work genuinely changing the hearts of people. And in our modern age, I think is another turn of things where the colonizers have left and yet the Lord's kingdom remains. And all the more I'm reminded of the fact that they, the biblical phrase that these kingdoms, um, are here today and gone tomorrow, but the word of the Lord stays forever and his kingdom is everlasting and it's growing and growing and growing. So while whole nations of Christians might be wiped out in history, know that there is still victory in the Lord's kingdom, which is bigger than one country. So should this nation, so the United States, um, one day be snuffed out because of our own like civil war or some reason the Christians all get wiped out here, even if every single one of us was to die, know that this nation is still eventually going to be under Christ's foot, just like everything else. So... That's why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael, the behind man behind the machine, and to my right has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thank you for listening. This has been a special Sebastian Passion Project episode. So if you want to see the other one, we said there's a two and a half hour episode um, that gives more details on this Church of the East and gives quotations and other things if you're interested. We also have many other episodes from ranging from response videos to weird drinking games um, that we don't drink in. Uh, so if you want to see those other episodes, you have to go to podbead.com. Uh, foundcause.podbean.com if you want to download them for your listening pleasure but if you want to see our faces and, and his book references and whatever else you have to go to youtube.com find us found cause there or we're on facebook and spotify and itunes and wherever else you might find your podcast so until next time when we talk about something completely different thanks for listening bye-bye <laughs>